When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So the most talked about new album of the week is called Let's Start Here, and it's by the rapper Lil Yachty. It's an interesting and instantly controversial album. He delves into what we can only call his own version of psychedelic rock on it. It's definitely a wild left turn of an album. So that seemed like a good reason to go over the broader history of left turn albums, because there's certainly been a lot of those. And to do that with me, I have Rob Sheffield here. Welcome. Happy birthday, Rob. Thank you so much. (laughs) What a happy occasion to talk about on my birthday. That's right. For your birthday week, Lil Yachty gifted you with this album. Yachty mostly sings over basically psychedelic rock, a bit in the Tame Impala vein. Yachty's thing, even before this, He referred to himself as bubblegum trap, and his thing was always like the guy who didn't have much to do with the history of hip-hop, didn't necessarily have huge reverence for the history of hip-hop originally. I mean, if you listen to an early single like Minnesota... It's so quirky. It almost has this outsider art type aspect to it. And then turned around and seemed to be trying to prove himself a bit as a rapper. Uh, One critic said that he he then started to seem like a quote-unquote mid-mainstream rapper. So it's great to see him getting weird again. It's all live instruments. It has a lot of really good contributors like Patrick Wimberley from Chairlift and indie guys like Mac DeMarco and Alex G. It's shocking from a guy that perhaps some people never took that seriously. A lot of people really like it. There's already been some backlash to the original praise, but Rob, I know you like it. Yeah, it's it has a sense of somebody winging it, but winging it on a level that requires like a whole lot of expense and scheduling. So it's not a very uh, spontaneous sounding record in some ways, but the concepts sound so spontaneous. Tame Impala is one comparison. I, it sounds to me like he wanted to make a Pink Floyd record. I know exactly what you mean by winging it because there's these incredibly accomplished and complex instrumental tracks that he then sometimes appears to be freestyling over. Yes, which is so love I think, that. Which, in my honest opinion, works about at least 60% of the time and is very interesting the rest of the time. So it is that interesting dichotomy of here's these tracks that required a lot of time and effort and then... I'm just going to step up to the mic and see what comes out, maybe, or at least he makes it sound like that. As people pointed out, Yachty, who seemed to be on a creative downturn after some interesting early music, came back with this song, Poland. That was a lot of fun. Totally different genre, of course. And extremely strange and extremely funny. I love that song. He took the walk to Poland. Walk is basically a brand of Cough syrup, apparently. Walkhard cough syrup. His sort of brand and image and stuff sometimes 
threatened to overtake the music, which he seems cognizant of. He talked about wanting this album to prove he's a real artist, which Alphonse Pierre of Pitchfork pointed out that there is that unfortunate thing where it's like, why do you have to leave hip hop essentially to be a real artist in the mind of Yachty, which is a kind of fallacy that people fall into. But I think to take the album as it is, it's definitely really interesting and worth listening and certainly a total shock. No one was expecting this. Yes. It's a really funny, strange, crazy record, maybe ill-advised in some ways. Among other things, it's a very enthusiastic record. And to hear a, a rock record, a very slick rock record made in this really super enthusiastic, almost headstrong sort of way is just adds a ton of charm to it. Rob, I thought that we would take this opportunity to broaden the discussion a bit and talk about other left turn albums. It's one of the things that musicians do is just steer in the other direction. And I thought, first of all, there's some people who just do it over and over again. And interestingly, those are some of the greatest artists often. Bob Dylan is a huge example. Prince is a huge example. Neil Young, of course. The Beastie Boys, I would say. Stevie Wonder. Bowie, for sure. He had a great line to sum up. His approach to making albums was crash your plane and walk away. And the idea is you take a concept, do it all the way, and then the next time you make an album, you just start over fresh with something new entirely. And he understood, I think for me, Young Americans, his soul album is the archetypal example of this. He changed everything. He got entirely, basically entirely new musicians and completely embraced that new world of Blue-Eyed Soul for the length of the project. And then, incredibly, his next album was Station to Station, so he's on another planet altogether. So yes, definitely David Bowie. Some people like Radiohead, a good example, of particularly in terms of how they adopted the Neil Young branding aspect of it, because a lot of Radiohead records, even when they don't sound hugely different from other Radiohead records, but they're always branded as a huge turnaround. This is an artist doing what an artist got to do. That's something I think Radiohead learned from David Bowie and Neil Young is to always make your new album about that, even when it's not a huge departure. But I think Kid A would, would I think that would be a strong contender for the one of the biggest and most divisive and controversial left turn albums of all time. And I think for me, what really denotes the kind of album we're really talking about is you're sitting down, you have no idea what you're going to hear and you hear it and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like literally yep. you're like, am I listening to the wrong band? Is this not the album that I meant to listen to? Like that degree of shock. And in my case, I don't know what your first encounter with, with Kid A was, but mine was somehow made my way into this preview for fans before the album came out at an IMAX theater where they played images from like a, an aquarium, maybe even 3D, I can't remember, but like an IMAX aquarium while they played the album on the big sound system. And it's not true. I think that there might be a, a myth that maybe people didn't like it. I literally interviewed the fans afterward. They were very impressed. They may have been a little confused, but they did not dislike it. But you could feel sitting there, and I could feel in myself the kind of shock of, of how different it sounded. It's lost that shock of the new 
but that only attests to its own impact, that it doesn't seem radical anymore. That's inevitably what happens. Now, least your divisive record. You can, that's you right. can have an easier time starting an argument about literally any other Radiohead album. Everybody it's kind loves of an easy listening album. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and it's funny because that one was one that was like the first big deal, eagerly awaited album where people were learning the songs via Napster before they came out because Radiohead had been playing these festivals. So I was really looking forward to Pyramid Song. which was then called the Egyptian song. I was really looking forward to Knives Out and You and Whose Army. So Kid A, I just thought, wow, they deliberately made a bad record on purpose and left out all these great songs that they've been playing. <laughs> People didn't use the word pivot back then, but it was one of the truly audacious pivots of all time. What are your favorite Prince left turns? God, he's another artist like the ones we've been talking about who would do this every single time. So that especially since with Prince, everything he did, people spent the next three years trying to imitate it and he had already <laughs> moved on. Not a good Prince album or even a pretty good Prince album, but I have to say, Around the World in a Day is not a great album, but it's like absolutely audacious and heroic that less than a year after Purple Rain, he puts out this album that is, it's in terms of trying to make a psychedelic kind of record, he basically made it Penny Lane, the Prince album, <laughs> like all the way through. I just remember hearing, that song Paisley Park for the first time. And just thinking, you've got to be kidding. I mean, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. It, it just, I love that album. And I realize it's not very good, especially side two, but there's just something about the audacity of it. And then less than a year after that, he's back with Parade, which I think is just a fantastic album. But people are still at this point trying to catch up with 1999. He wasn't even trying to do his own Sgt. Pepper. He was he was trying to do basically Odyssey and Oracle, or you know, maybe even the <laughs> Bee Gees Odessa or a Strawberry Alarm Clock album, but something like super fluffy. I thought it was crazy, but I was rooting for him and I loved it. And of course, then Raspberry Beret turned out to be just a yeah, classic prince hit that now just sounds like classic 80s prince. And how about Stevie Wonder? Again, that's one where you could point to a, a few places in his career. The most famous one is one that didn't really come off, which is The Secret Life of Plants, which is just <laughs> such a great and funny idea. It's a little sad that it actually didn't turn out to be a, a more memorable album. He also made the transition from Teenage Prodigy to Adult Auteur. There were a lot of many turns in the career of Stevie Wonder. Well, talking Book, it seems to me like Talking Book is underrated these days. And people think about music from my mind as like more of the big turning point, but it's nowhere near as good as Talking Book. And the fact that Talking Book was such a phenomenal album. And such a phenomenally weird avant-garde album. And yet such a universally beloved pop album. Talking Book to me is a, it's still my favorite Stevie Wonder record, but it's really the most shocking to me that he just had the audacity to go ahead and make that record. It's really emotionally and musically just, it's out there and yet in your face at the same time. The fact that we're talking about, the last time we talked about Talking Book was just a few weeks ago on our Jeff Beck episode, because there was that collaboration on there. So I think that kind of says it all. Taylor Swift is an artist who's done this a few times. She's someone who has made a point in her career of saying, okay, this really great album I did last time that I could remake in my sleep and everybody would like it and it would be brilliant. Absolutely nobody would be mad at it. 
I'm going to do something different. And she's done that many times in her career. At this point, that's the main thing she does. The new album is always a break from what she was doing before. And that's something that her fans have come to expect and insist on. It's really weird to go back in time to 1989, the, the album, not the year. And just what a profoundly weird and wrong move this was. It, wrong in terms of what everybody thought at the time. Absolutely nobody at the time would have said, okay, Red was a pretty good album. What you should do next time is make a Depeche Mode record. And make a record that sounds exactly <laughs> like Erasure and the Pet Shop Boys and Bronski Beat. And the shockingness of this record, it's hard to imagine. I remember hearing this album for the first time, hearing the first song of the album is Welcome to New York. Welcome to New York. It's been waiting for you. Welcome to New York. Welcome to New York. And listening to what's coming out of the headphones, because I'm listening to it on headphones in her apartment, and I'm just, my jaw is on the floor, and I'm thinking, this is so not what anybody would have advised her to do. This is almost completely like going out on a limb. It's very much a burning her bridges to the past song. There's no acoustic guitars in that song. There's no twang. There's nothing remotely country. There's no sensitive lyrics about leaving a scarf behind in somebody else's room or autumn leaves falling into place. It's very much like a synth pop disco song. And also it's a very pro queer positivity song, but that was extraordinarily shocking at the time. It is really easy to underestimate how shocking and just downright offensive that move was musically to people and how mm. many people who heard it would have predicted that it would have been like the, the kiss of death for her as an artist, that she was going somewhere that was completely different from what her fans were used to. And the music world, both the audience and the industry, were completely shocked by the fact that this turned out to be a, a totally vindicated move and that, in fact, her fans liked it better this way. Her fans liked that she was challenging herself and doing something different. And again, that's something people come to expect from her every single time. But 1989 is, I think, the most shocking example of her saying, I'm just going to make the complete opposite of the album everybody wants me to make. And of course, it's going to be so brilliant that everybody is going to be glad that I made this one instead. And then, of course, she did it at least two more times with Reputation and with Folklore. You could put Speak Now in that list as well. It was an album that was hugely popular, but at the time, people thought it was weird that A, she wrote all the songs by herself, and B, they were all super long. That's basically her prog album. Like Songs are all like six, seven <laughs> minutes, and they all have bridges that go on forever, which, of course, became her trademark. All the things she does at the time that seem like wrong moves are all vindicated by time. So she's clearly a decade ahead of everybody else who's watching her career. The Beastie Boys, there's really a few points you could point to. Unbelievable. Again, like they would do it every time. It, it cannot be stressed, weird as it seems, that everybody, absolutely everybody thought Paul's Boutique was going to be an embarrassing mega flop. It's really incredibly comical in retrospect. As Mike D said at the time, he's like, I realized everybody was expecting us to put out Fight for Your Right to Party Part 2 and fall on our faces. Sorry to disappoint everyone, but just what a phenomenal record that is. And then the next time, everybody just said, okay, make Paul's Boutique again. And they did this punk rock record. Check your head. It was... phenomenal. And for Bob Dylan, it's almost like we don't need to go over it. But I think when I was talking with people about what we were going to do in this episode, one run kept coming up, which was the sort of John Wesley Harding 
Nashville skyline self-portrait area of his career, where he was just really, I don't know, like driving in a figure eight, doing just really jarring transitions. And certainly just the, just coming out. I know a kid who recently heard Lay Lady Lay after hearing previous Bob Dylan songs. Lay Lady Lay Lay across my big brain's bed But hadn't heard Lay Lady Lay and heard it and they just cracked up for three minutes because they couldn't believe he was singing. Why is he singing like that? That's how startling it was for someone to not only change directions but somehow unleash this entirely different singing voice. And then when asked about it by Jan Wetter, just being like, eh, I quit cigarettes. It's like, no, that's, I don't think that was it, man. But yeah, that sort of crooning style that he does, almost like he's trying to antagonize people, which is obviously like he did that huge historic pivot when he went from acoustic folk music to electric rock and roll in 1965. And it's funny that people thought he was going to stay there, but no, he just kept doing that forever. And it's funny because like Dylan is somebody who makes it seem, somebody like, Stevie Wonder or Prince or David Bowie, they always make it seem like this is a decisive mood, like a decisive move, a decisive change. They've planned this out. Whereas a lot of times Dylan just seems like, oh, I don't know, just throwing it at the wall to see if it works. And sometimes sometimes something like self-portrait, some people have a really strong revisionist defense of self-portrait and God bless those people. I'd rather listen to them talk about self-portrait than listen to his version of whatever Gordon Lightfoot songs he's doing like on that album. But I, to me, it's the impulsiveness of it and the sort of confusion of it is part of the charm. A lot of my favorite Dylan albums have that. And John Wesley Harding is perhaps a little bit under-discussed these days, but it was his 1967 album. And what it really was is sort of him going acoustic again after going electric to a certain extent. And also, and the cliched analysis is just as rock was becoming more and more Baroque, he was going stripped down. John Wesley Harding, it's still, it's a really shocking, it's not a comedy record. Like Lay Lady Lay is just a flat out comedy record. I think the kid that you were talking <laughs> about this record with was absolutely right. It's supposed to make you laugh. And there's absolutely no way that the guy who wrote It's All Right, Mom, I'm Only Bleeding and Gates of Eden and Like a Rolling Stone, there's no way he did not intend you to laugh when you heard him sing Lay Lady Lay, Stay Lady Stay. Stay with your man a while until the break of day. Let me see you make him smile. The way he sings that line, he cannot keep a straight face. I completely love that. But John Wesley Harding is a really grim, bleak, intense, succinct album. None of the songs have choruses. They're all really terse little parables. Some of them are completely ridiculous and make no sense, like the ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, which is one of my favorite Dylan songs. And Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. They were the best of friends. So when Frankie Lee needed money... Which I've been trying to figure out since I was a teenager, and I don't think I'm getting Good any luck. closer to that. Yeah, but just fantastic, intense record. It's intense. It hits you hard. It puts on the chill. It's not a meandering kind of record like he could do so wonderfully. I love records like Knocked Out Loaded, which I will concede is a terrible 80s Dylan album. But <laughs> I just love that he was like, okay, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just going to write a bunch of pop songs that I have no expertise in writing at all and I'm going to wear mascara and shoulder pads and a sort of Miami Vice suit and do a, a video for MTV where I'm line dancing. I just, I love that Dylan was always willing to do stuff like that. And that's a few years later, he tried a different version of that and came out with the Traveling Wilburys, which turned out to be one of the great 80s projects that he did. But that sort of impulsiveness, you don't get any good records with that, that impulsiveness. So 
you got to expect some bad ones along with it. From the sublime to the mildly ridiculous, but someone I'm very fond of in, in my own way, Machine Gun Kelly was a rapper and his he was aptly named with this sort of rat-a-tat throwback flow that he sometimes would adopt to something more modern. But he, when I profiled him a few years ago, he was always like breaking out the guitar, which he also did on stage even before this, but he break out the guitar and try to play like a Blink-182 song. And so it was clear he was, something else was coming. And I just bring this up because it's definitely one of the biggest recent examples of this. He just totally switches genres, gets a pink guitar, uh, works with Travis Barker and records two really successful, actually pop punk albums in a row. The first one was called Tickets to My Downfall. And got away with it, a total genre switch, just a total remake. And again, what I like about it is that he committed. He didn't do like half pop punk and half rap. He just went and did this thing. And I think it's good because it introduced Gen Z to the total genre shift. MGK now joins that pantheon of Prince and you wonder, I think. Yes, yeah. absolutely nutso switch. And also he was, in my opinion, he was so much better at this than he was at what he was doing before. So to me, it was yeah. a very welcome left turn. I was like, wow, this seems to be right in his sweet spot. This is around the time that he played Tommy Lee in the greatest movie of our time, The Dirt. <laughs> and he is so good in that movie. I'm someone who watched that movie having no idea who he was. And he's playing Tommy. And I was like, this is unbelievable. And, and for a lot of the people in the movie, I was like, this, who is this incredible actor who's playing Tommy? And I was like, oh my God, this is Machine Gun Kelly. And he was, it was almost like part of that. It was almost like David Bowie in, in The Man Who Fell to Earth, that sort of like influencing his next album, Station to Station, in much the same way, Machine Gun Kelly. I think the pop punk stuff, yeah, better for him. As much as I saw the rap connect with his audience at the time, I think it's, it's more kind of true to who he is. And supposedly he's not going to stick with it. And that is a mistake. MGK, stick with it, man. Another recent one, recent-ish, which is Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino by Arctic Monkeys. And this was another one that I experienced in real time. They actually set up an album preview for us. It was the follow-up to AM, this tremendous rock album. They made like really one of the I don't want to say get in an argument and say one of the only great rock albums of the 21st century, but certainly a very major rock album of the 21st century. Have you got color in your cheeks? Do you ever get that feel that you got? And here they are following it up, the great hope of rock and roll. So we got a playback of this album in a really nice studio. I think it was the former hit station in, in, in Manhattan. And a lot of anticipation and we play it and it is, I was genuinely stunned. I can't remember the last time I was taken aback because it was not rock at all. It's this like space lounge fucking concept album thing that, that I've since learned to like. But at the time I was kind of vaguely horrified by it. I felt like an abdication of everything they were building towards. When I think of albums that really shocked me, that's one of them. One. This, it could I mean, be honest. this sounds to me like the album everybody tried to make in 1998. And if it was a great idea, it would have come out better in 1998 too. This is just, it just seemed like the very cliche of rock band who are bored with playing rock. So they're going to do, try to do something and they have no 
emotional or aesthetic commitment to it other than that it's not rock and that they're not very good at it. To me, this was like a classic (laughs) case of a band who is bored with being good at something and decides to do something that they're not very good at because they assume that it's easy. And in fact, it's not necessarily easy to make a quality headphone, loungy, easy listening kind of record. And again, this was a trap that so many bands fell into in the late 90s that it was comical to see Arctic Monkeys sort of bumble into it. Give us some examples. Got don't want to antagonize. I, I know you're a huge Smashing Pumpkins fan, and I love Smashing Pumpkins too. I think we can agree that Adore was not their greatest work. I like Adore. Uh, I guess I'm wrong, I think, Brian. No, no, you're not. You're not <laughs> wrong. I don't think Adore is loungy or easy listening at all. I think it's just him making his like Depeche Mode album or something like his Billy Corgan version of a of that kind of thing. For me, that's just the songs are like basically just good Smashing Pumpkins songs. If anything, what's wrong with it is it's not actually that much of a departure. It's just he took off the guitars and played synths instead with the same kind of songs. Like, all right, so you changed instruments, but you didn't really change anything else. You're writing songs with the exact kind of structures and even riffs. You just played them on a different instruments. Okay. Like you could just do a version where you play it on guitar. So that's where I fall on that one. I think like most people actually <laughs> liked the guitars on Smashing Pumpkins records. Most of them, most people probably even thought of them as the highlight. And you listen to like all the great like guitar songs and that Smashing Pumpkins did. And it's just funny to think, yeah, the one thing that we're going to change in the formula is we're going to take out the rockin' guitars, which, again, I think most people really like. I do recall Billy Corgan giving an interview to Guitar World around that time and really antagonizing the magazine and its audience by being like, guitars are dead, everyone's going to be sick of them soon, which he wasn't a thousand percent wrong given the year. Uh, uh, well, not dead, but certainly if you look at the trend of what was pop, he was right that the alternative rock as a commercial force was uh, cresting at that point. But he wasn't going to become part of the future by doing a door, unfortunately. That did not make him into the Spice Girls. Uh, it, it, did, it did not make him into Hanson. But I liked, I liked James Eha's record that year much better. Like, I thought I, that was my Smashing Pumpkins album of that year. I said, okay, this guy decided to rock. Billy was deciding, whatever we do, we're not going to rock. It's a classic thing for rock bands to say, we're so bored of being rock bands. Kid A is a great example of Radiohead, we did it in the right way, but we forget how many bands fell into the trap of saying, we're just going to do things that are not rock, but because we're geniuses, it's going to come out great. And actually, most rock musicians are better doing rock stuff than they are doing non-rock stuff. This is what the Pitchfork Review said about the Lil Yachty album, except in reverse. So it's an argument that can be transplanted, I guess. You mentioned Black Flag's My War as one of the albums you wanted to talk about. So great and so divisive. Still divisive. It is still, yes, it is still a guaranteed argument starter. Specifically, side two of My War. So this is Black Flag. They are universally uh, revered and esteemed and feared hardcore band. They did Damaged in 81, one of the greatest hardcore albums ever. And then they had horrible legal problems that kept them from releasing any albums for a couple of years. So they come back with an album called My War. And 
Side two is long, slow, dirgy metal songs. And that was so polarizing. It was unbelievable. It's, it's funny that it's never, ever been difficult to get anyone to argue about my war. Whatever somebody thinks about side two of my war is, that's something they're going to keep arguing about for the rest of their life. And that's something I love about that record. I do not love side two of my war. Uh, one of the famous refrains on that album is, you're one of them. And one of those things like something that will often be quoted in a my war argument. Oh, you like side two of my war? You're one of them. It's part of the lore that has surrounded that record. It's remembered and cherished mostly because it's such a surefire argument starter. Speaking of left turn metal, I haven't thought for a long time about Metallica's load and reload because what was supposedly this this radical change in direction didn't seem all that radical to me, but it was a huge deal to their fans at the time. How much mad. of that, though, was the haircut? I was just going to say, yeah, I, the haircut. I think the haircut was maybe 90% of that. And and maybe <laughs> the songs were definitely different. They were short and, and they were poppier. Metallica had done that before with the Black Album, which was, again, another album that's so successful and such a classic in retrospect that people forget how divisive and controversial it was at the time. Metallica fans hated that record. Such a good point. Um, Metallica fans hated that record. And it was funny that everybody else liked it a lot more than the Metallica fans did. But if you were somebody who was into Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning, then, you know, it, it was a hugely divisive and controversial record. But I will say on Reload, I, the song The Memory Remains with Marion Faithful. Which is one of those things, if you so weren't uh, listening to music in 1997, you don't know how often that was on MTV. But did you ever realize that you can sing the fortune, fame, fortune, fame, mirror, van? You can actually sing that perfectly over another a song we were just talking oh, about. It's the exact, about it's, it's in fact, it's, it's so close to the instrumental part at the beginning of Station that I think Hetfield unconsciously took the melody from the beginning of Station to Station and made it the chorus of his song. It's the same thing. Really interesting. I never thought of that before, but it, you're totally right. It has that same kind of clank. I love it. I think a lot of the controversy was the haircut and the fact that they were on Lollapalooza. They were certainly making their sort of detente with grunge. But Metallica, the Black Album, that was a record they absolutely did not have to make. They did not have to conform to commercial trends because they had already proved with Justice for All and Master of Puppets that, that they did not need to conform to anything. They could just keep making Metallica records so that they started doing these power ballads and these Bob Rock produced like, pop songs played by Metallica was hugely divisive in a way that is totally understandable. But that's it's a record that's still, like you still hear Metallica fans say that like it's good for what it is, but it's not Metallica to me. You mentioned an incredibly iconic one, Fleetwood Mac's Tusk. Yes, completely strange that, okay, Fleetwood Mac puts out this huge mega blockbuster mid-70s album called Fleetwood Mac, which sadly nobody remembers now because it was the album they made before Rumors. People remember the songs <laughs> from that album, like Rhiannon and Over My Head and Say You Love Me. But it's funny that people forget how shocking that, that album with the white cover was because the next album they put out was Rumors, which is considerably better on every level and one of the all-time great records. 
about love or about breaking up or about anything really. And naturally, the entire music world, fans and the industry, assumed that Fleetwood Mac were going to put out another album that would be mellow, rocking hits about breaking up in Malibu and being bummed out in the hot tub and everything. And instead, the lead single is called Tusk. It's this absolutely demented proto-indie rock, just thump a thump a thump a thump a thump a thump Mick Fleetwood is just banging out this really primitive rhythm. There's the um, uh, USC marching band blaring away on it. There is, um, I guess you could call it a chorus that like, don't tell me that you want me. No, that's not really a chorus. There's no hook. There's no tune. The lead vocal is this absolutely mind-blowingly explicit, coked out, seething. Why don't you tell me who's on the phone? It sounds like Peter Laurie or something. There's absolutely nothing about that that sounds like a band that wants people to like them. And yet, because the entire American people were on drugs at the time, it was a top 10 hit anyway, but still a completely strange. Lindsey Buckingham has often made the joke that you know, the first the, sa- the first sound that you hear in Tusk is the sound of all the record industry people like weeping as they see their Christmas bonuses disappearing. And it really did seem like commercial self-immolation. It occurs to me that as we look at the theme of how many of these are follow-ups to hugely successful albums, it does suggest that sometimes this sort of psychological mechanism behind the Left Turn album is in fact an avoidance of competing with oneself. If you say, no, this one's just the weird one, then you don't have to top the last thing commercially. You've removed yourself from that race. And I do think that is a phenomenon that probably takes place here. When you look at how many times this happens. Yes. Probably some degree of insecurity that people think, oh, I I can't top that again. So I'm not even going to try. I'm going to make something lesser or weaker or nichier on purpose to avoid my fear of failure. I think that's pretty common. With Tusk, they really thought they were making this masterpiece. And as far as a lot of people are concerned, including me, they did make a masterpiece. But it's amazing how much of it is just in a round. Just some of the best songs are just Lindsey Buckingham in his basement, you know, with Mick Fleetwood hitting cereal boxes. What makes you think you're the one is fantastic. I Know I'm Not Wrong is just, I think, my favorite Lindsey Buckingham song ever. Lips Certainly Not That Funny is up there as well. He was doing these songs that were really, in retrospect, they sound like pavement, or they sound like yes. Alex Chilton circa Like Flies on Sherbert. They sound like Sebado. They sound like really lift out indie rock from the 90s. They do not sound so much the king of the Malibu mellow singer-songwriters, but in Lindsey Buckingham's case, he was brilliant enough that he came up with these songs that were all so different on, on every level. And everybody else, all the other songwriters in the band were also stepping way outside their comfort zone. Yeah, one thing I don't know is when it became accepted, that is also a classic. How long did it take for kind of the world to realize how great Tusk was? I think the 90s. I think 90s indie rockers were really into Tusk in a way that made it canonical because it was obviously a formative album for a lot of them. You listen to a song like I Know I'm Not Wrong right now, and it's like really completely bizarre to think that the world's most popular band made that 
song in 1979 on an album that was widely considered a flop. It was strange gesture that turned out to be prophetic about a lot of types of inspiration that would keep showing up for people over the years. And this is a weird one. Queen made an album called Hot Space. And wow, quite a departure. In terms of a band whose track record is 10 years of unlimited, unparalleled success, and then they put out one album that kills their entire career in half an hour, it's astounding to see. It's hard really even to think of parallels that in terms of the before and after for Queen, in terms of Hot Space, is really amazing. They kept going for 10 years after Hot Space. They kept trying, but that album had just killed everything dead for them. I kind of dig some of it. You don't believe me, but I really do. And I don't, I don't believe you, but I'm just kidding. I do believe you. It, do, it has under pressure on it, by the way. Okay, that doesn't really count. It has body language. That was the hit. Body language. Body language. That was, wow. We could do a whole other one about unfortunate lead singles chosen to break albums <laughs> that were maybe not the choice to, to make the best case for that album. Yes, Body Language was Queen's Cleopatra's Cat, <laughs> you could say. Yes. But yeah, listen, as with all these, you can see the logic, though. They had this enormous hit with Another One Bites the Dust. that crossed over to R&B stations and everyone loved and got them a whole new audience. So they kind of thought, let's make a whole album like that. So there was, that's what, so there was a logic to it. It just, I guess, as a whole didn't work. I think as a novelty, there's stuff worth listening to on this album. Let me put it this way. It's worth hearing once. (laughs) What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Jewel. Jewel made an album called 0304 in... 2003. She included a note to her fans in the liner notes. This album may seem different to you. I'm glad she pointed that out because nobody would have noticed that on their own. I guess Jewel, to be fair, her first album had some really nice folk pop hits on it. I don't think it cohered as an album as a whole, even though Ben Keith of Neil Young fame produced it. Now that I think of it, she hadn't like made a great album, at least in my opinion. And she was, after the initial sort of folk thing, she then, I believe she worked with the Madonna producer, Patrick Leonard, on the follow-up. She was trying to find, because ultimately, where do you fit in when you're a folky in 2004? So she went for it and did this full-on dance pop album. And it seems like I actually liked it at the time, although the single, Intuition, is undeniably awful. I it's love just, it. Like, it's so like, bad, Rob. I'm just a simple girl in a high-tech digital world really trying to understand all the For me, making the case, it's a bit like Madonna was doing with Ray of Light, that, that 
oh my God, that is sacrilege. Do not compare that this garbage album to one of the greatest <laughs> albums ever made. That's just, that's evil. That's okay. an abomination what but, you just said. But you picture, it's, the thing is like, you're jewel for years, few years, it's really fun. And you think, yeah, I want to do something. I want to make a fun little pop record, little synth pop record, something that seemed like harmless fun. It didn't seem like she planned to build the rest of her career around intuition. I thought this album was really fun. And I liked the sort of, the spunk involved in saying, this is my chance to make this record. I'm not going to be a jewel cartoon for the rest of my career. And I really admire that. And also this was, you have to admit, the song worked really well as the ad that it became. As a 30-second TV ad, the lifestyle branding of it was very powerful. It made a great ad, made a great jingle, and thought it was a fun hit single. Yes. If you hear intuition now and think, geez, this sounds like it should be a Razor commercial or something, that's literally what it was. Just speaking of being Jewel, I should just shout out the the increasingly infamous Jessica Simpson duet with her on Who Will Save Your Soul. Jessica Simpson does the song in more of a Jewel-like manner than Jewel does, standing right next to Jewel. And it's one of the wildest things you will ever hear in your entire life. So definitely check that out. That was a, a one song left turn for Jessica Simpson, and I'm deeply grateful for I'm it. I'm so glad that you turned me on to that one. Somehow I had not heard that before. And that was a real mind blower. Thank you, Brian. Oh, yeah. Anytime. I uh, felt your intuition on that one. Ice-T's first Body Count album. That was a big surprise. Someone with as much authenticity as a rapper as you could possibly have goes and makes this metal hardcore band and, again, just fully commits to it. And to the point of, and then the irony was that his biggest controversy ever came not with a rap song, but with a rock song, Cop Killer. And that obviously, there's a lot that I love about this Body Count record. Like Ice-T was somebody who clearly loved this stuff, was coming to it as a fan rather than an expert, and was wanting to make his own version of it. And there's like a real sort of honesty in that and a real sort of personal commitment to it. I was talking with the Little Yachty record and the enthusiasm behind it. Body Count is whatever else it is, a hugely enthusiastic record that Ice-T really wanted to make this record. Very similar to the Jewel record in a lot of ways, that this is somebody stepping outside their usual musical sound. But in a way, it's, I'm a fan of this stuff. Why shouldn't I make a record of this stuff as well as everything else I do? Why do I have to be one thing or the other? And in both cases, they're one-offs that are divisive. Enthusiasm counts for a lot when you're doing something like this. I think Pinkerton is a great example of the kind of albums we're talking about, Weezer's Pinkerton. This is only the second Weezer record people have heard. There isn't like a Weezer timeline or Weezer narrative that people can fit this into. People are just like, oh, here's this band who made this really tidy, neat, clean, shiny T94 hit album. And then they figured nobody was ever going to hear their second album because by then it had been well established that all the other Weezers were going to have flop second albums. So they made this one assuming it was going to be a flop second album. But uh, they put all the catchy songs in the second half, which is really amazing. That was clearly a band that was not planning for anybody to hear this record and not even hoping people would hear this record. So it's very different. It's very untidy and very sloppy and in a way that made it more affecting and more touching and more comic. The lyrics were another level of confessional. In fact, to... And some songs like Across the Sea. Ooh, uh, 18 
like truth serum damaging levels of of confessional that were very ill-advised perhaps but really endeared them to fans at the time while also alienating other ones but yes sonically you're absolutely right in fact when i interviewed them for a piece about the first album a couple years ago they were explaining how everything was so tight and rigid on the first album they had rules about rivers made rules about only downstrokes on the guitar and they were playing to a click track on Pinkerton, and it was already pretty late in the game of as far as music to be abandoning a click track. Most people were playing to clicks by that point. They had no click track. The tempo goes all over the place. The sounds were really untamed. It's a great wild album, and it was very stunning. I would say it was more stunning to Weezer fans, casual Weezer fans, than Kid A was to Radiohead fans. People were absolutely freaked out by this album. but And in the end, it, I think, ensured their longevity by making a whole new group of fans. This was, it was an oddity. It was like, oh, wow. It was like, wow, the Gin Blossoms made a concept album about like their <laughs> fantasies about groupies. And it's not noticed by anybody. Happened. It was a very, it was an album that was forgotten like very quickly. I listened to it a bunch because a friend of mine was really into it. And I got really attached to this record in 1997. And it was a thing where you could put those songs on tapes for people. And people were like, this is the same band that did Buddy Holly? What, they put out another record? Let's Speak of see. rock albums. What about something like Kisses, Lick It Up, the album where they took <laughs> off their makeup? This was hugely divisive at the time, particularly since this was a few years after they did an album called Unmasked, where they didn't take off their makeup. And I remember seeing the Lick It Up video on MTV for the first time and thinking, wow, that's what Kiss looked like. And I was like, why are they even doing this? It seemed like a strange move for them. It seemed like Kiss had sort of lived out one story and really stretched it for a very long time and seemed like with Lick It Up, they were going out of their way to start over as a, a band that was not a dragon or a wizard or an Egyptian warrior or a cat or any of the other creatures that had inhabited the Kiss fictional universe at that point, that they were just like, going to be like four rock dudes. And surprisingly, they made a go of it. I mean, Lick It Up was a great song. It was a great album. It was, it began a whole new run for Kiss. really bold and audacious at the time. And they unmasked is such a such a nothing of an album. And at that point, like it seemed it sounded like Kisses Unmasked. Apologies to the Kiss fans like it in my life, but it just seemed really strange that lick it up that they were bothering to do this at all instead of moving on to their next bands or their solo careers or whatever. And Kiss were ahead of the rest of us as always. The funniest part about Lick It Up is I can hear the lack of makeup. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but you can. You totally can. As if they were actually wearing makeup while recording the other albums. But, <laughs> but yeah, you, you actually fool yourself into thinking you can hear it, which is completely insane and, and says a lot about how the psychology of music and image works. Definitely. Common's Electric Circus is actually a really direct predecessor since Lil Yachty is not a student of the history of hip hop, to say the least, he have no idea if he's even aware of Electric Circus. Two thousand and two album by Common that was pretty divisive at the time, and for me, has aged pretty well. He talked about Pink Floyd as an influence, and he's rapping, but it, the music is not necessarily hip-hop and it's very much of a piece it's it, quest love is there the pino paladino the whole team from d'angelo's voodoo are involved the whole soulquarian thing it's one of those albums that kind of points to a future that never existed this kind of like very musically adventurous brand of rap that did not become the future yeah 
it's it's an album that's kind of out of time in a way for better and for worse i still think it's the best common record and let's see so there's some that are just so canonical that we don't really need to dig too deep into them but we should mention the ultimate examples are nebraska what can one say about nebraska though apparently there's an entire new book I wrote a chapter of a book about it, and there is a, a new, entire new book coming out about it. So apparently there's much to say, but that was incredibly radical at the time. It's hard to emphasize how radical it was, especially because after Nebraska, it became a known part of Bruce Springsteen's persona that he was also the kind of spare acoustic folk guy, that that was part of what he did. But that wasn't really known except maybe for the hardest core fans who knew that that's how he started before Greetings from Asbury Park, that wasn't even associated with him that much. And so here was the biggest rising rock star in the world doing this like incredibly dark, lo-fi solo acoustic album. People across genres from country to hip hop would be like, my next album's going to be my Nebraska. And then the one after that will be my Born in the USA. Or sometimes get a common thing would be to get the order reversed, which actually would make more sense that I'm going to do my, like Bruce Springsteen, I'm going to do my Born USA and then my Nebraska. Because yeah, they think it would be the retreat after the big album. But no, that was Tunnel of Love. You mean you're going to make your Tunnel of Love. But anyway, I remember when Nebraska. Kelly Clarkson was making her album My December and she said, this album is going to be my Nebraska. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this is really, the myth and legend of Nebraska has really passed an event horizon now. Like where It's like, everybody knows this is the album to make if you're going to step outside your formula. It's an album that has also an album that, it, for one thing, it still sounds amazing. It still sounds like really startling, even outside to people who had just bought The River to come to this album. It was like, why is he even doing this? And it, But it's still a phenomenal record sonically, like what he's doing. With, people thought it was simpler than it was in terms of, but there's a lot of craft work on that record, a lot of suicide on that record. The band, I mean. And it's well, both kinds, really. Yeah. The brilliant writer Sean Howe has coined the term Nebraska-risk for when (laughs) there's an artist who people are. A lot of people feel like they're too cool to like this artist, but there's one album that they will concede that they like, and that every popular artist has their Nebraska-risk. Like folklore (laughs) is Taylor Swift's Nebraska-risk. If you're not into Taylor Swift, you could be like, but at least folklore, I, I can concede, is great. And for a long time, especially in the '90s, and People would be like, but okay, Nebraska, I'll give you that one. That one is great. And it became the Nebraska risk that basically invented this whole new category of a rock album or a pop album or a hip hop album that is so outside the artist's other work that you can like it without any fear of emotional commitment to the artist in general. Perfect concept. And some artists should have made an album and just called it My Nebraska. <laughs> it's not too late. Someone can still do it. And the other, like, incredibly cliched left turn example, and another one where people, I haven't heard anyone say it in a while, but there was a time when people would be like, this is my Octung baby. And that was, you know, you two, everyone, everyone likes to hate on you two. And actually that's a great, the Nebraska totally, uh, thing yes, is- Octung baby was there, yeah. Nebraska risk. Yes. Yeah. Could you spell that? Nebraska plus the word asterisk. But yes. So Octung baby, perfect example of that. And yes, you know, everyone loves to hate on YouTube, but the, there was never a more self-aware band and they knew what they were doing. They knew that they had become too much of one thing and needed to become something else. Oh, sugar, don't you cry. Hey, child, wipe the tears from your eyes. 
And it's a brilliant record. I don't know. I think, unfortunately, some of the U2 hatred has gotten so strong that I don't know if young music fans even open themselves up to Octang Baby, but they could at least do that. They at least go back to the Octang Baby risk situation because a great album. And it did it did form that template of, oh, here, of a band breaking out of their sound. Totally. So, totally. Also, like one of the, a whole other tradition is the, we're making our Eno record. You two had already <laughs> done that with the Unforgettable Fire, where it was like, at the time, the Unforgettable Fire. I was like, why did they do this? Like, why didn't they make another album of U2 songs? Why did they make this completely not so great experimental record with Brian Eno? But Octung Baby is the one where they were like, no, we're really going to make the Brian Eno collaboration that is, as Bono famously said at the time, it's the sound of us chopping down the Joshua tree. But that's exactly what it did. And it gave U2 a whole, a whole other story that really begins with Octung Baby, a phenomenal record. and. Not a record that renounces anything that they did before, but a record that sort of made everything they did in the future possible. One I almost forgot about was there's a lot of revisionism around this album now. A lot of people think this is a great album. I myself do not. I still haven't been won over by this album, although I think I'm won over by the single more than I was. The album is Sam's Town by The Killers, and it was only their second album. It's easy to forget that. Their first album, Hot Fuss, I think is a pretty classic album. I don't, it's a great album. I think you would go even farther than that. Yeah, it's a classic. It, Hot Fuss is absolutely one of the best albums of this century. It's, it still sounds amazing. It's a concise, new wavy, post-punky album that has its influences, and none of them are the aforementioned Bruce Springsteen. And for Samstown, only their second record, and this is another one, where, where I remember the big event, the label had a big premiere where they handed out programs like it was a, like it was a Broadway show. It was the official label premiere. I found it incredibly overblown and a failure. There are people who now think it's a great, great album. I don't think, I don't think we're with them on that. They went on to make Day and Age, which was a great album great killers album. It's sometimes, again, like we were talking about, sometimes a band is good at something and they take for granted what they're good at and they insist on trying to do things that they're not as good at. And with day and age, they realized, no, like the killers is a great thing to be. Let's make another killers record. I might be almost sold on when you were young, which is their sort of fake born to run song. You play forgiveness, watch it now. That has grown on me. The album as a whole has not. The Hot Fuss or Day and Age, it's weird because it's in between these two great Killers records that are definition of everything the Killers do great. Can we talk about the Jay Giles band just a bit? So I know you specifically requested that we talk about Jay Giles band and their album Love Stinks. And maybe you can just catch people up who may have forgotten or who never knew about the Jay Giles band. They were, they were a 70s rock and roll band from Boston, quintessential bar band. They had a full-time harmonica player, Magic Dick. God bless <laughs> that man. He is still a master of the rock and roll blues harmonica. And they had a huge amount of success in the 70s. They became much more famous in the 80s when they started using synthesizers. And they did records like Love Stinks and Freeze Frame and Centerfold, the records that they're most famous for now. But it's funny that I, Love Stinks is such a historical turning point of a 70s sort of 
old school bar band who decide to do synthesizers. And Peter Wolf at the time said, the whole reason we modernized our sound was we could finally afford to because we'd sold enough <laughs> records. But this was, and it's funny because now something like Freeze Frame... Love stinks. They sound pretty much like classic Jay Giles band songs. But at the time, it was a particularly controversial and divisive mood for them to be doing that. Awesomely, Rolling Stone gave gave Love Stinks a negative review, saying it was a step backwards for the Jay Giles Band. And a serious Jay Giles Band fan wrote a letter to the editor complaining about that Rolling Stone <laughs> review. And the really interesting thing about that was this very passionate Jay Giles Band fan was named Jan Wenner. And Jan <laughs> actually wrote a letter to the editor in Rolling Stone saying uh, the, the review of Love Stinks, the new album by the Jay Giles Band, was mistaken and unfair. No one should be misled by the review and miss such a fine album. All right. So left turns. We know there's plenty we didn't mention because there's a million of them. We didn't mention metal machine music. There's a million things. Endless topic. Maybe maybe we'll do a part two sometime. But uh, Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord! We get it! They have chemistry! Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.